What could loving your neighbor actually look like? Welcome to the Journey with Care podcast, your online community of sojourners who are growing more loving in neighborhoods all across Canada. We'll navigate into hot topics about child welfare, faith, and reconciliation. Be challenged with real-life stories and honest conversations that will inspire you to love others well. We're glad you've joined us on this Journey with Care. Well, I am delighted to be here for another episode. We have a good episode in store for our listeners here today. We are actually speaking from coast to coast. We have with us uh, Ray Aldred, who we'll introduce in a moment. Out in the West Coast, all the way to the East Coast, we have our very own Tim Smith, our Academy Director, who lives in Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia, and I'm the Prairie Girl right in the middle. Welcome, uh, Tim and Ray, to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you, Wendy. Dr. Ray, we're so pleased to have you here in the studio with us and honored that you would spend this time uh, with us talking around some of the topics that I know are very close to your heart and close to ours and close to our Father's heart. So I would love for you to introduce yourself a little bit to our audience, but I'll just first say what a little I know about you, Dr. Ray, is uh, Dr. Ray Aldred is Status Cree from Swan River Band in Northern Alberta, Treaty 8. He's the Director of Indigenous Studies at the Vancouver School of Theology. He's also ordained in several denominations, the Christian and Missionary Alliance of Canada, as well as the Anglican Church of Canada, I believe. Is that right, Ray? Yes. And you have quite an extensive background in ministry um, starting many years ago, and I've also had the privilege of hearing a little bit of your, uh, what we like to call in the church, your testimony of how uh, Jesus came to you uh, and how you uh, came to know Jesus. And I would love for you to touch on whatever whatever is on your heart right now to introduce yourself uh, and in this conversation around how do we care well for children and families in our nation? Well, thanks for the opportunity to be here. I'm in my office, which is on the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish peoples out here on the West Coast. And uh, my wife and I live in Richmond, British Columbia, we have four adult children. My oldest son and his wife live in Montreal. My two daughters live, one lives in White Rock and the other one lives with me. And then uh, my youngest son lives in Grand Prairie, Alberta and his wife. And looking forward to our conversation. Beautiful, thank you. As a husband, a father and a grandfather, you carry uh, a beautiful wisdom and a beautiful heart for, for the family. Uh, for your family, and I know your your family extends far beyond what many of us consider a nuclear family, but really a family is being the community that you belong with and you belong to. And And I'm honored to live here in Mi'kma'ki, here on the East Coast, and uh, just learning a little bit of my own Indigenous story from where I'm from. Ray, I remember uh, hearing you speak in an, another context and saying we're actually all Indigenous. And that was the first time I've ever really sat with this thought that it really matters where we're from. And many of us here in Turtle Island, what we call Canada, don't have that sense of our origin story. Uh, Ray, I'm curious to, to hear a little bit more about something specific, and I'm just going to dive right in here. I've heard you speak to a ministry that you've been part of, you call the Ministry in the Midst of Trauma. And you've sat in this space for some time and worked in multiple communities. Could you unpack a little bit of how you got to that ministry and what that has meant to you? 
Uh, well, my experience of ministry in the indigenous community is that sometimes there's hard things that are happening. I remember first thinking about it. I read a book called The Grieving Indian by Arthur Holmes. Art Holmes was a Nisnabe from northern Minnesota, I believe. And he said that the reason that many Indigenous people struggled in their journey is that many times he thought because of unresolved grief and compounded grief. There's so many losses. A friend of mine shared with me recently that in their communities, they've lost somebody this year every day. Every day this year, they've lost somebody. And in another community, I was talking with some, another friend, a colleague, another part of the country, and they had said the same. There were two or three a week people passing on. And when it's a smaller community, you know, when you're talking, that impacts everybody. And then you, you start to grieve, but then you have to go back again and you start again and you're just, you're caught in this. Ministry in the midst of trauma was because for many, the other aspect was for many Indigenous communities, most Indigenous ministers don't make enough money that that's all they do. They have to do several jobs. So in one aspect, they don't get paid for it, but they're the only spiritual care person there in the community. So they're called upon to do these things. Ministry in the midst of trauma was just to help people build on the resources that they had, build on coping skills, build on different approaches that could maybe strengthen them in the midst of what they were doing. If you read the Gospels, take, for example, John, when Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room, it's in the midst of grieving. Jesus is leaving. The Spirit comes, or Jesus comes after the resurrection, but it's the midst of they're grieving still. They've seen Jesus die. And this is when the fullness of the Spirit comes. Ministry happens in the midst of trauma. And hmm. yet, I believe that that's where Jesus meets us. Henry Nouwen said, so we befriend our pain. We embrace the things we're going through. I don't know that they're supposed to be like this, but we embrace that. And in the midst of the pain, that's where Jesus is. Jesus is not the pain, but he's in the midst of the pain. That's my approach to ministry. So wow. you see it in the Eucharist or the communion meal. Uh, Henry Nouwen said that Jesus was taken, blessed, broken, and given. And that's our life. We're taken, blessed, broken, and given. That's part of our, what we're called to do. We were just trying to strengthen people as they were on their journey. And that's what we try to do by giving different kinds of practical skills for the journey. So we talk about creating a safe place where you can talk through things with people and process your emotions. We talk about how to do that, what, what different emotions are trying to do for us and we're just trying to, trying to normalize people's situations that they understand that they're probably doing better than they think they are, that this is just a hard thing to go through. It's a hard thing to go through. That's some of what we do. That's really profound, I think, um, for a lot of uh, people in the Christian experience. 
there's a tendency to, and I might be overgeneralizing, there's a tendency to look for those hallelujah moments or God is good all the time. And yes, he is good all the time, but we, I think we can often fail to embrace the suffering of Christ. Right. I, I love the approach that you're normalizing that, that Jesus came for those spaces for the brokenhearted. I'm curious how you approach that in a way I'm assuming you're not sitting them in a psychologist's office, not not to, to diss anything about what other methods are, but what is an indigenous way of sitting with grief, being mm. with people, helping people through trauma that maybe a lot of us don't understand or we need to learn from? Uh, what does that approach look like when you're being with people in trauma and helping them through it? For me, because I came to faith, or I started following hard after Jesus when I was 19, that what was really profound about following Christ, I was thinking one day, you know, God would be great if he delivered me from all my difficulties. But if God could be with me even in the midst of my difficulties, that would be even greater. Because the first one just didn't seem realistic. Because we're going to go through difficulties. That That's just part of what it is to be a human being. And demanding that God deliver us from every one of those things, and that would be the sign that God cares about us. If we had lots of money, lots of friends, and we're never sick, that's not realistic. But that God can meet us and be with us in the midst of the difficulties. Like in the midst of when I was trying to sober, be sober and it was hard every day for eight months that see that was profound to me that was something that i didn't have before and suddenly it was in my life there was like there was enough grace there was enough grace for that moment an indigenous perspective is uh to understand that the things that happen in life well that's the life that we have it's not some other life we're trying to find that this is the life that we have interesting i remember i was reading there's a book by an it was a catholic priest who was up in near the community where my great-grandfather was from and uh, he wrote he writes the Cree never ask when something happens they don't ask was this good or bad this is their world and they live in it, and that's how they approach things. And I think, whereas uh, I see society, and they try to, oh, they're always trying to distance themselves from death. And an indigenous community, that death is part of life. This is this is kind of what happens. There's long rituals that happen so that people have an opportunity to grieve. They don't try to just get it over with so that they can run away from it and never think about it again. But when someone passes, they become part of the venerated ancestors and you remember them. And you do the ceremonies so that you remember them. I think when we were closer to the land as a society, more aggregarian, then that was probably the case. But the more that people are in cities and are forced to you know, forced to hurry all the time, work all the time. I think that we've lost touch. Mm. So that's kind of a different approach. I love that. It's like a paradox of the good news. I think so often in society, we're looking for the good for now in the comfort, but we're not actually needing God as the good news. Our good news is in our healthcare system or in our, our health or the circumstances around us. 
and, and sometimes we, we limit the good news to a fire insurance of salvation out there. But can it be actually good news in the paradox of turmoil and addiction recovery and grief and all of those things? I I just hear from your story, like the good news came when you were working through those things. And wow, what a challenge for the mainstream church to be able to embrace grief and suffering rather than react to it. I feel like there's a lot there that we need to sit with and not run from. For indigenous people, you know, we've been the target of uh, assimilation policies by government. Mission has been targeted at us, you know, by different churches. So then there's these things that are, they're the result of generational trauma, residential schools, land relocation, racism, all of these things. They've been aimed at us, but sometimes, you know, Canadian society looks at us as a problem to be solved. Well, we got to help these people. Right. What if, what if no other people in Canada, what if no one else could survive the way that we have done? What if we're doing probably the best that we could, given the circumstances? One of the switches that flipped for me in ministry was when I realized that who am I to say that someone else is, that they could do better? What if they're already doing lots of better? And and then I'm just trying to come alongside and build on the strength that they're already displaying that no one lives as long as they do without doing something right. So I just think I tried to focus on the positive that is in situations. We were just talking before this, uh, Wendy and I, about a comment that you made that Indigenous people have really, this would be my language, I guess, I'm paraphrasing you a little bit, so correct me, but they have essentially set the table for reconciliation in Canada. And I immediately, as you were making those comments, I was thinking of the ancient practice I learned about called Salha, which you're probably familiar with, where the one who is offended actually sets the table to sit down and eat with the person who's offended them. And I was very moved uh, when I heard you speak to that. I don't know if there's more you want to unpack or you can uh, correct exactly how I'm understanding what you were talking about, but the even the funding of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission you were saying was being done by funds that belong to Indigenous people. Yeah, it came out of their settlement where the residential schools, that's what paid for it. The treaty among the Six Nations with the newcomers it's called the common bowl. Aspects that are called the common bowl, we all eat from the same bowl. One of the privileges of living in this land is that to be fed, to be fed by Mother Earth, to be able to enjoy the bounty of Mother Earth. This is to share with everybody. The idea, though, is that everybody should share, not that some should have all of it or others shouldn't have all of it. And it's not a merit-based kind of a thing. It is what it means to live in connection with the earth, to be able to be fed. Uh, a friend of mine said, indigenous people were advocating for universal Medicare long before Tommy Douglas did. This was part of their thinking in the, in the making the treaty. This is why they would always say that this, when they were making treaty in one place, they said this needed to apply to everybody, all of the First Nations and all of Canada, when it was talking about providing the medicine chest, as it's called in some of the number of treaties. So the idea is that human beings are sacred, they're sacred beings, so we should be respectful of them. And the idea of children, I think it was the Blackfoot 
they say that each child is self-actualized. They come out, they're self-actualized. It's only adults who wound them and cause them to stumble that we need to work to repair that damage. That's what we should be doing also, besides of all the other things we're doing. That we could actually damage a child and make them... There's a break with your, your own identity. You become alienated from your own identity, alienated from your own body, alienated from your land, from your creator. This is what happens. This is what adults do to children. And that's why we need to work on ourselves so that we stop causing so much damage. Are there some specific things that you see in this space as you've worked in, in the area of helping those who are ministering in the church? Um, I know Indigenous church communities, but you are a minister beyond Indigenous churches and Indigenous communities. But specific things that, that you see that have become normal, uh, that are clearly not natural or healthy, just maybe something that comes to mind as we're asking this question in this conversation we're having today. I think that what became normal, which I don't think is healthy, is the the trying to cut all relational ties when you become part of a church, like uh, David Bosch wrote about that. In North America, most churches assumed that Christendom was the model that they were working from. So then they didn't need to plant churches. They just needed to get individuals into their church because they assumed that they were in a Christian empire. Most churches in Canada still have a Christendom hangover. <laughs> they really don't have a vision to see the church planted among indigenous people. And if they do, it's a version of their own church planted among indigenous people. And it, and it tends to try to sever the relationship that people have with one another as communities of people. And they also tend to sever the relationship that people have with land. That's unhealthy. We tend to focus so much on individuals that we sort of forget that it's always more than just an individual. There are some writers, theologians over the years that have tried to address that, but that's an area we just don't think. I think Rick Tobias has passed on now, and maybe you knew Rick when he was running Young Street Mission in Toronto. He used, I heard him speak once and he was right. He said, I think we believe the right thing is that we just believe them too small. Too small. We're always too small. So then when I teach, I always say, look, you need to, you need to think again about creation because you, you really don't strengthen the relationship that people have with creation. For creation is the only place that we experience God. We never experience God someplace else other than in creation. So we need to strengthen the relationship that people have with the land. Best thing that my father and my mother did was they taught me how to live in relation to the land, how to find food, make food, not destroy everything when you're doing things, mm. how to grow things from the land. And, and lots of people knew that. Lots of people knew that. But we started forgetting that. And you're losing something when you do that. And the other thing that uh, I think we've also come accustomed to using violence to get what we want. And I think 
that's just not healthy. You can't use violence to somehow achieve some end that you, you perceive as the kingdom of God. But we somehow justify those things sometimes. It often seems like we've, we've fostered some kids and behaviors can be difficult. And it often seems like taking the strong hand to just stop the behavior. And we talk about this in our drama care courses. It seems like that's the easiest, the best solution. It's going to fix everybody's problems. It's going to keep the hole from going in the wall. And yet at the same time, what really is our goal can draw out some different solutions, but also asking, so what's the actual need behind this behavior? And I think the way that we define the problem or who we allow, I've even heard you speak to this, who we allow to define the problem is definitely going to define the solution. And I think when you're speaking, you know, the way that we often jump in in such a, the word you've used is violence, and there's no really way around not using that word in this context, right? Um, we've used that, the phrase in our trauma care training, when we know better, we do better. And, and I know knowledge, when I hear of it from an Indigenous perspective, is not simply head knowledge. It's not intellect. It's this heart knowledge, right? This, this knowledge that only comes from connected relationships. So when you talk about relationship to the land, I've heard you define that. Would you, would you give us a little bit more? Relationship to the land is, I suppose, maybe everybody's experienced it. And it, they realize that they had a relationship with land if they've ever traveled to another country and then come, when you come back home and you stand on the land, you can feel it welcome you home. For Indigenous people, there's no other place we can go. There's no other place that I could go. And, you know, I can't go back to somewhere and then um, that's where my roots are from. This is where it's from. It's also the confidence. I was thinking about that Y2K crisis and everybody thought the world was going to just all chaos was going to happen. I stacked my kids down the day before and I said, look, I said, I grew up. The power went out all the time. We survived. We'll be okay. I said, I know how to do this. I've done this before. I've lived in this land. We've made do when it was cold. Your grandmother was in a tent for six years of her life. I said, we'll be okay. I said, don't worry. To me, sometimes people think they got to have a lot of stuff. When the earth provides for us, we'll just understand how to live in relationship. It's not easy, but it's there. It's there. There's also the idea of, uh, which has come to the fore now, trying to think harder about things before you decide to destroy some land to do certain kinds of things. Like you got to think more about those things. Like how are you going to work to restore that once you, like if you decide to drill for oil, how are you going to, are you going to remediate the damage caused to the land after you got to think through those things. I just thought if people could step back and think about those things, but it's also for younger people, just when people, when you're having a hard time, I don't know, don't people do that anymore? I used to go out on the land and the land would make me feel better. But sometimes I wonder if they're scared or something, but to just be out on the land, not to be scared and to, to know that it welcomes you. To me, that was just part of growing up. And I wonder sometimes if people struggle because they don't know how to make a connection with the earth. So then they're always stressed out. Thank you.
Heard you speak to the importance of seeing that we live in story, that we're, we have a shared story, and inviting story as a primary point of connection. Right. Um, and you you make the comment that Indigenous people begin with the heart. Yep. Many of us can begin with the intellect in our in our majority culture right now, right? But can you speak a little bit to that? What is that? Well, a lot of the ministry in the midst of trauma, part of it is just learning your own story learning to tell your own story, to realize that your story is the thing that people connect with. Or maybe they get insight, but it's never what you think it is. I think, you know, your, your, your insight, you, what you think is going to impact people. I've preached long enough to realize it's never what I think is going to impact people. It's some other thing that impacts them. But it's the story. It's the story. It's told like a story. When we encounter the gospel, we take it in and it takes us in. And that's kind of what it is to follow Jesus in the world, is to realize that his story has become our story. And his story is big enough to take us all in. And then the things that happen to us, somehow, like Jacob said to his brothers, he said, what you intended for evil, somehow God's brought good around he wasn't saying that what they did was right, but somehow God brought some good out of his life. And I just think that there's good that comes out of our lives and that we're broken, but life still comes out of us. The thing that human beings struggle with, I think, is I was reading this the other day. People struggle with, they kind of reject themselves. They they feel contempt for themselves. They're, they're ashamed of who they are. That starts when you're very young. I thought anything we could do to help young people to not get caught up in self-hatred and destructive behavior because they're trying to take it out on themselves, but that they can learn that they have, they have some gifts and the community needs them and they need the community. So that's how the story works. You want to understand somebody, you got to listen to them. You got to listen to their story. Because everybody's telling us their story if we just stop talking long enough to hear. That's what an elder used to say to me. He says, if you listen to people, they'll tell you all about themselves. That's what I try to do. And the church should try to create places where people can share their stories. Too much of the church ministry is just about talking not enough about listening. That's beautiful, Ray. And, you know, some of the things that you've been sharing uh, here, even in the last few minutes, are reminding me of the episode that I've heard you speak uh, on the Henry Nowen podcast, referencing The Life of the Beloved, which is a book that is deeply imp impacting me right now. Yeah. Any any salient thoughts from, from that? If there's anything that's kind of come out of our conversation today that you have from that sense of, of living from this place of belovedness, as opposed to that, from that place, like you're saying, so many people, especially young people, grow up in that place of, of self-hatred. But this experiencing the love of God so that we actually can not just know intellectually better, but know in our hearts better and thus do better. Hmm. The idea is that, you know, our whole life, we're growing and maturing to be who we were created to be. And I think sometimes we get so caught up with thinking that we need to be some, this, this thing or that thing, and we just forget to embrace 
who Christ has made us. And to me, that was all taken in. That goes back to that we take in his story, the gospel, we take in his story, and it takes us in. And then when those two things begin to intertwine, to me, that's, that's the Christian life. And then working through the trauma, the woundedness, so that we can try to get past the distortions that we see that have come because of the trauma. So we have these distortions, how we see what ourselves, how we see others, how we see the Creator. But as we work through you know, trauma, using all the tools that are available to us. You've mentioned Gabor Mate, those are all good tools. Mm. But seeing that all as part of the creative work of God that he's making and remaking. Until we come to the place, and all of creation comes to the place, where creator and creation meet in perfect harmony. That's what the doctrine of Christ being fully human, fully divine, and that doctrine is trying to affirm that God's creative plan was to see creation and creator meet in perfect harmony. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. I just think sometimes we, we say that, that Christ is fully human, fully divine. But it's an intellectual thing. Yeah. But understanding that this, this is the journey that we're on in creation. And so we're part of God's creative work. And we get to join in with the Creator and trying to heal, trying to work to heal damaged relationships. But we're really just following what Christ has started with in, when He came, and that will continue until He comes again. I just find that if you think about it in terms of God's creative work, that's more helpful for me and more hopeful. Right. Well, if there was... A few things that you would leave with our listeners who are part of the church, who, you know, have that heart, they want to engage, they'd love to, you know, impact children and families in their community in a positive way. Just a few words you would say to the Canadian church who cares for families, but doesn't necessarily know what practically to do. What could they step out even this week and take from this conversation that we've been having and do something? We were talking about Henry now, and so one of the things about Henry now is that he would talk to people on the street. Sometimes there were people, street people. He listened to everyone's story and he would stop and he would take the time to connect and to listen to their story. So if you can just, I think, just stop talking, listen to somebody. And then with the children in your life, to try to share from your heart what's really going on, to be vulnerable with the children in your own life, because I think that's how children learn to speak from their heart. You know, a, a whole human being is to, so if we model that, to share what's going on inside of us. Too often in our modern world, the church tries to build a separate world where children live. I think what children would appreciate is if we taught them how to live in the world that they're going to have to live in. Ray, this has been a beautiful conversation and I continue to learn from you. And how can others continue to learn from you? What are, what are other ways that people can connect with you beyond listening to this podcast today, Ray? 
I wrote a book. It's Matthew Anderson and I wrote this book. It's called Our Home and Treaty Land. If you're interested in it, I think it's available on Amazon. Beautiful. And then summer school. So the second and third week in July, if you happen to be out in province, well, you don't, you, you could do it. You get to it over Zoom, but if you wanted to be in person on the campus of the University of British Columbia, Vancouver School of Theology, we do a couple courses each week, second and third week of July. You can come out, take a course, hang out, eat some salmon. <laughs> I've heard that's a beautiful place on the land out there. Yes, it is. And it's the one time of year it's all sunshine and not much <laughs> rain is in we're out here. Ray, we so appreciate you, the who that you bring as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a community member, and uh, we are enriched as Canadians to live here on Turtle Island with you, truly. And thank you for continuing to share what you do through the many avenues that you do, both as a professor and as a community member and beyond. I know you touch uh, many people around you in significant ways, and thank you for contributing to the conversation today. Bless you, Ray, in the work that you do. And thank you so much for being here today with us. Thanks for listening to the Journey with Care podcast, where paths connect over real life stories and honest conversations. We hope you continue to join us on this journey of faith, reconciliation, and loving our neighbor. Journey with Care is an initiative of Care Impacts, a Canadian charity dedicated to connecting and equipping the whole church across Canada to effectively journey in community with children and families in hard places. Learn how Care Impact is transforming the way churches engage child welfare with our Care Portal technology and academy training. To support this podcast or learn more about us, go to careimpact.ca or follow us in the show notes. We're so glad you are part of this journey with us as we journey with care, even in the messy. Until next time.